today on Ag News Daily. Vietnam is probably our largest cotton market. It's a good soybean market. It's a growing market for our beef and our pork. It's the seventh largest market for U.S. agricultural exports. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here with Delaney Howell, joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I tell you what, it's a slower news day today, but it is certainly not a slow day when it comes to the commodity markets. Yeah, Delaney, I'm right there with you. Don't have too much news to share, but I know you mentioned earlier that you have some market discussion to talk about, which fits right in with what we're talking about with our interview today, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So why don't you kick it off and share what you have to talk about with the markets? Well, yeah, so it is very much related to our discussion today, but because we're going to be talking again to Bill Bryant, who we've had on the podcast before to talk about trade. When we had him on about a month and a half ago, we were talking specifically about Chinese trade. And that's what my little piece of news here is about, because we have seen commodities rally. We've talked now to multiple market analysts. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I also work at an ag marketing firm. I was working today with my boss, Chad Toyn. He's a technical analyst guy. We're looking at the charts and, you know, it's, it's like I said, Chad, what's going on here? You know, we're finally seeing this rally. Usually farmers are expecting to see rallies during July, June, you know, the summer month rally, which is what we expect to see. It's really unheard of to see markets reacting like this ahead of harvest, you know, especially with USDA saying we could still have a record crop for both corn and soybeans. And, you know, he said the time has come. We are now seeing a demand driven rally. We're seeing China come in. They're buying during the 2020 2021 marketing year. And they're buying both corn and soybeans. And so for the first time in quite some time, we're finally seeing a demand-driven rally. I I mean, to put this in perspective for folks, corn is up 55 cents since the August lows. And we're still seeing China come to the table. And, you know, I think China may have gotten themselves uh, stuck in a pickle here because, you know, for a long time, they were cautiously buying products prices were low, but now we've finally seen the markets realize, hey, China's stepping in. That's supportive for the markets. We've got demand. Let's start to rally on that news. And so China's stuck here buying products at prices that they probably are not very favorable for their folks. But uh, definitely exciting today in the markets again, especially for soybeans. I tell you what, we're seeing huge volatility in the soybean markets especially, and volatility can be scary for the markets, but I think it's going to be really positive here moving forward. So, you know, I am just happy. I think farmers are finally happy to see some price action. We're seeing farmers price grains at some favorable levels or, or buy them back on paper, so to speak. And so, I don't know, that just puts a good spin, I think, on things for folks. Yes, Delaney, it definitely is exciting and very interesting. But one interesting thing that I've been keeping my eye on today is producers of plant-based meat substitutes are suing the state of Oklahoma over its Meat Consumer Protection Act. The new law will require the imitation foods to have labels showing the products are plant-based in the same size and prominence as their product name. Starting in November, plant based foods will not be able to use the terms poultry, beef, or pork without the proper disclaimer. Upton's Natural 
Company of Illinois and the Plant-Based Foods Association are seeking an injunction in Oklahoma and federal court to block the new law from taking effect. The plaintiffs say the new law is a content-based regulation of speech that violates the First Amendment. Similar meat labeling laws have been passed in Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri, Montana, South Carolina, and North and South Dakota. Wisconsin has introduced similar legislation for meat, milk, and dairy ingredients. I definitely thought this was interesting since they are claiming that it is a, that it is a violation of the First Amendment. But, you know, I'm kind of on the side of the state of Oklahoma because I don't believe that with plant-based foods, they shouldn't be able to use terms like poultry, beef, or pork since they don't contain any of those ingredients. But that is my personal opinion. No, and I mean, I think that most people in agriculture would also have that opinion, Ashton. So you're definitely not in the minority there. Yeah, I really wasn't hoping that I would be in the minority. But, you know, I just... I have said it once on the podcast before, but I'm pretty big on labeling, whether it's GMOs or on imitation meat products. So I'm excited, I guess, to see whether or not Oklahoma does get blocked. Um, But I'm going to keep an eye on this and see what goes on in court. Yeah, and I think another important thing to mention here is that it's going to be important to see what happens in Oklahoma because... You know, we talk about precedent a lot on the podcast, and I'm not an attorney, and I've never claimed to be, um, but I believe that cases like this have the ability to set precedent and see that happen nationally. So whatever happens, you know, in Oklahoma, for example, will probably be follow suit, will probably follow suit in other states as well. So this really is an important issue, I think, to continue to follow. Absolutely. And what other issues are you following on the day, Delaney? Well, Ashton, I tell you what, we are still watching inclement weather, especially wildfires and hurricanes happening across the country. It's crazy to think, but we're starting to get some hazy skies, so to speak, here in central Iowa, largely coming from those wildfires going on out west. But federal assistance will be available for folks affected in those western states by wildfires. We saw the American Farm Bureau Federation and 13 different state affiliate groups are asking Congress to provide additional funds and programs to help prevent and recover from those catastrophic wildfires. They also sent a letter to Senate leaders supporting the Emergency Wildfire and Public Safety Act of 2020. So that's an act going on right now in Congress that could get some money allocated to it for farmers and ranchers affected by those wildfires. But I tell you what, it's crazy to think about how much land has been burned. And they said so far, nearly 6.9 million acres across 11 different states have been burned just this year during these recent fires alone. So uh, aid is definitely available, or excuse me, aid definitely needs to be available And USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue does have the ability to declare an emergency disaster since the president, excuse me, has the ability to designate disaster money or an emergency declared by the president would also immediately allocate some money there. So USDA has an emergency loan program that will provide eligible farmers low interest loans to help recover from some of those production and physical losses. But I think that American Farm Bureau and other folks are also asking for just some additional support as well on top of that. 
Yeah, Delaney, I've been following along with those wildfires and it just is so crazy to me how quick and how devastating that kind of stuff can be. It really is. I mean, quick. Yes. Yeah, just quick. And it's crazy to think that we're starting to see some impacts. I mean, it, it's pretty, it is pretty hazy out today. You can't see any clouds. You can't see the sun. Uh, just to think that, you know, we've seen smoke and stuff coming from the West all the way into Iowa now. I did not even realize, I guess, that it was reaching, not the fires, but, you know, the smoke is, is reaching you guys. That's just absolutely devastating to think about. But moving on from that, I have some dicamba news. We haven't really talked about dicamba in a while, but a coalition of Nebraska ag groups is urging the EPA to move swiftly to re-register over-the-top post-emergence dicamba products. In a letter to EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, the groups note that farmers are already beginning to make decisions about purchases of seed and crop protection products for the 2021 planting season. They request EPA issue new, simple, and understandable registrations for the dicamba products so farmers can appropriately plan for the upcoming year. The groups say farmers, ag realtors, and applicators have not only made significant investments in dicamba-tolerant crops, but have made great strides in the safe and productive use of the product. And the Nebraska groups behind the effort are the state's Agribusiness Association, Cooperative Council, Corn Growers Association, Farm Bureau, Grain and Feed Association, and Soybean Association. I thought it was very interesting because, you know, we were talking about dicamba so much earlier this summer. And this is one of the first things that I've seen about dicamba. But with people gearing up for the 2021 planting season, I'm expecting that we talk a little bit more about dicamba in the upcoming weeks. Yes, Ashton, I would anticipate that you are right. And it seems like now that you're saying that, I mm, I don't have the headline pulled up anymore, but, uh, well, wait, maybe I do. Anyways, it, I, I was reading some stuff earlier that was talking about potential lawsuits that could go on related to the Enlist product, which is not a dicamba product. It's a, you know, a glyphosate premix, but I anticipate that we could see some more dicamba lawsuits as well. Yeah, I am anticipating that, but we will continue to keep an eye on that in the coming weeks as people are gearing up again for that 2021 planting season, but we haven't even made it through a harvest yet. So right. I assume that we will continue to talk about harvest and then maybe catch up with that a little bit later. But Delaney, I am all caught up on my news today. What about you? I am as well, except to talk about these explosive markets that we continue to see and excited to finally talk about on the podcast. Uh, let's start off here in the corn markets, which really, I guess, if you're deeming winners and losers, or winners and losers, uh, I guess they would be the losers only because their moves haven't been quite as explosive as soybeans, but they still are continuing to trend upward. Starting off here with the December corn contract up three and a quarter cent at three seventy-five, even while the March put on two and three quarters to close at three eighty-three and three quarters. As I mentioned, the soybean pits now well above $10 as the November contract added 17 cents a day to close at 10.28 and a quarter. The January up 15 and three quarters cent to end at 10.32 on the nose. In the wheat pits, the December contract added 14 and a quarter cent to close at 5.56 and a quarter. The March up 13 and three quarters cent to close at 5.64 and a half. 
Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets weakness here today as the October, well, mixed trading, I should say, in the live cattle pits, at least, as the October contract added just a nickel today to close at 106.77. The December shedding 62.5 cents to close at 111.32 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, weakness continues as the October contract shedding 97.5 cents today to close at 141.45. November got a dollar 32.5 to close at 142.20. Lean hogs had a good day today as the October contract traded up a dollar 30 to close at 66.52. The December up a dollar 65 to close at 63.62 and a half. And rounding out our markets today with the with the class three. Milk futures, the October contract adding 15 cents to close at 19.04, the November up 35 to close at 17.95. Without further ado, let's kick it off to our conversation with Bill Bryant of Bryant Christie Inc. to talk trade in Vietnam. Well, we are excited today on the podcast to have back Bill Bryant, chairman of Bryant Christie Inc. You'll remember we've had we had him on about, oh, you know, about a month and a half ago to talk trade. And we're going to continue that discussion today, Bill, but we're going to be talking about trade overseas with some of our rival trade partners. Bill, for those of our folks who maybe didn't catch the episode last time with you, give us your quick take on a little bit about your background. Oh, well, I've been working in agricultural and agricultural trade for the last 30 years. I started off with the Apple industry on the West Coast of the United States and did all of their market access and, and trade negotiations. And then after doing that for a few years in the 80s and early 90s, uh, groups around the country began calling and asking for advice on what they should be doing. And so in 92, I set up what is now Bryant Christie, Inc. And Bryant Christie helps food manufacturers and agricultural exporters, um, companies and cooperatives and associations uh, export their products around the world. And then we also have a group called BC Global, which has a number of databases that help companies and exporters ensure they're complying with foreign food safety regulations. So you are uh, definitely qualified to talk about the subject of trade, I'd say, Bill. Yeah, I've I've been working with ever since well the first Bush and Clinton administrations on on NAFTA and the Uruguay round and uh, not it was not as involved with the Obama administration or this administration but have been involved in most of the trade agreements over the last thirty years. And so you reached out to us or your your people reached out to us to talk about another important issue that could definitely impact the business of agriculture and agricultural exports and that's the free trade agreement going on right now between Europe and Vietnam that went into force August 1st. Bring our listeners up to speed on that and why they should care about that. Yeah, it's, it's why they should care because it's not getting very much attention. But if you remember when we spoke, and you're right, it was several weeks ago in July, we were really focused on China and whether China was fulfilling its obligations under this purchase agreement. But something happened in August that just didn't get any attention at all. And that is the European Union negotiated and finalized a free trade agreement with Vietnam. Now, why is that important? Why should anybody care? Well, Vietnam is one of the fastest growing markets for our U.S. agricultural exports. Um, it's a big deal on the West Coast with fruits and vegetables and nuts, but it's a big deal for it's a huge deal for cotton. Vietnam is probably our largest cotton market. It's a good soybean market. It's a growing market for our beef and our pork. 
it's the seventh largest market for U.S. agricultural exports. So it is a it's a big deal when you're looking at the components of U.S. agricultural exports around the world. Vietnam is number seven, and the biggest supplier to Vietnam for agriculture is China. And so when we negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement with all the Pacific Asian countries except China, what we were trying to do is really get an inside road into the Vietnam market at the exclusion of China. And when we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the United States negotiated and set up, when we pulled out, we were really giving Australia and Canada and New Zealand an advantage in our Vietnam market that we helped build, they now have tariff preferences and Australia and Canada and New Zealand began to fill the void. And then on August 1st, Europe announced it had just negotiated a free trade agreement with Vietnam. So what this means is we had this, this seventh largest market for Washington, or for U.S. agricultural exports and it was a growing market when you look at beef and pork and cotton and soybeans and dairy, another one where there was growth. And we really have put ourselves now at a competitive disadvantage. We've done this to ourselves. If you if you look at as a result of this agreement with the European Union and Vietnam um, on dairy, for example, the European Union, Canada, and New Zealand have a zero tariff if they ship dairy into Vietnam. The United States we got 5 to 20% on our product. On pork, which the European Union is a big competitor of ours for the pork market in Vietnam, they now have a zero tariff. In the United States, 10 to 25%. In beef, so, so I mean, yeah, I'm talking too much, but I mean, this is, it's kind of going um, unnoticed, but we have really retreated um, in a very important market. And I think it's going to hurt growers and farmers and producers all across the United States. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to ask first, you keep mentioning that it's gone unnoticed. Why do you think that no one in the media or from the administration or elsewhere has made this more of a well-known subject? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but I'm thinking people think, well, it's Vietnam. It's, it's just a small country. Europe can have an agreement with it. It doesn't really matter. And not stopping and saying, wait, this is a, a country of 97 million people. It's before COVID, it had a 7% growth rate with really low inflation, really low unemployment, and a real burgeoning middle class as a result. So they're, they're beginning to import, whether it's fresh fruits and vegetables and nuts and processed foods from the West Coast, or beef and pork and cotton and um, commodities from the middle part of our country. I don't think people realized it. And now, not only do we have this growing market, but Europe has negotiated this agreement, and I don't think it's fully sunk in that we are sort of surrendering a major market that we helped develop. And because of our own trade policies, we're beginning to withdraw from. That's maybe a complicated story to tell, and maybe think it's just a small country, it doesn't matter, and maybe that's why it's not getting attention. But one of the reasons why we reached out is, I think it ought to get attention. This is a, this is a wake-up call. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly is. But, you know, again, I think we talked about this the last time you came on. What what can we do about this? I mean, not to be blunt, but 
legislators and people in Congress and the trade offices, those are the people that are negotiating our free trade deals for us. And when things happen, you know, like this, it, it feels like there's not a lot we can do as producers. Well, that's true. I think we can let our members of Congress know that agriculture would support getting back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, the United States set that up as a way to isolate China and to give us a preference over the European Union. And when we voluntarily withdrew, uh, we opened the door for Europe to get much more involved. We've allowed China to become more involved in these countries, and we've put ourselves at a competitive disadvantage with some of our friends in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. So the first thing we could do is get re-engaged with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If we were to do that, we would suddenly have tariff preferences into countries like Vietnam as well. I think a lot of our representatives, though, think that the TPP has you know, been so disparaged that it's politically unpopular to support it, and we have to let them know that at least for agriculture, there's a lot of advantages for the United States being a part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And Bill, when you look at, you know, you're talking growing middle classes, countries that maybe have been classified as developing or underdeveloped or now developing growing middle classes and Vietnam being, you know, a prime example of that. What other countries do you see out there as having that maybe socioeconomic or big foundational change to their systems that could lend themselves to being potentially big partners that maybe just aren't on our radar yet? Well, there are, there are a lot of other countries in Southeast Asia which are in that category, but Vietnam is one that is really growing very quickly. The other country, which I think could be a very significant market for U.S. products, but it will require going in and having some real substantive trade discussions that aren't going to be easy, um, and that's India. India has a huge growing middle class, and they have a, a big appetite for a lot of American products. They also have a lot of trade barriers. But if we really are serious about isolating China, and if we are looking for an alternative market, that's where the people are. And I would encourage us to put a lot of resources and effort into deepening our trade relationship with India. Yeah, that's been one that I also have been uh, watching pretty closely. Just you look at the amount of people that live there and needing to feed those people and they, that poses in itself a, a large trading partner. And there's a, there's a, we talk about their middle class being the same size as the U.S. population, but not all in that middle class have the capacity to buy imported food. But increasingly, they do. And they're looking for high quality and even luxury products, which would be like processed food products or semi-processed products. And we have a lot of agricultural exporters who could provide those products to this new burgeoning middle class in India. Yeah, absolutely. And Bill, before I let you go, because we have you on today and you are kind of a trade expert, I think a lot of farmers have finally seen China coming to the table, stepping in. We've seen corn and soybean prices rallying on a demand-driven situation, finally largely coming from China. Is there any indications out there that this scenario could change or do you anticipate that China will continue coming to our table so to speak here for the near future well you know they committed to buy 36 billion dollars in products this year and even with some of these recent commitments I think they're only about maybe a third of the way there 
So while that this, these recent commitments are great, we welcome them. Uh, compared to what we thought they would be buying at this point, they're still falling way short. And when you look at the overall trend, let's just not take a few months after this purchasing agreement, but look at where we were in 2015 and where we are today. I mean, corn is down almost half, wheat's down almost half, soy is down, pork is way up, but that's because they, they've got to have pork for a lot of different reasons. So I am very encouraged, as I think a lot of people are, that it looks like China's coming to the table and making new commitments. But if we step back and look at where they should be relative to what they said they would purchase, and when we step back and look at a four-year trend, it's, it's concerning. Um, and it's concerning when the administration says, well, you know, we don't really think that that agreement is so important anymore. A few months ago, this was heralded as a great agreement. Now we're beginning to say it's not such a big deal. And that sends a signal to China which I don't think we want sent. Absolutely. Good point there, Bill. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. We'll, uh, maybe we'll have you be kind of our resident trade advisor moving forward. I will come on whenever you want. I think it's fun. I like doing it. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Every wet cell battery gasses when being charged and under normal use. Thus, it is designed to have a vent system for the cells. If the vents are in the wrong place for your application, the battery terminals will have a propensity to build acid on the connections. The gas that the vent exhausts is the electrolyte in a rarefied form. If the vents are in the proper location and the battery likes to build corrosion, then it most likely has a minute and unseen crack in the case. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, again, a big thank you there again to Bill Talking Trade today. He's always great to talk to, really knowledgeable guy, definitely has his own opinions on trade, whether you agree with them or not. But I think he has a lot of insight into the wheelings and dealings that go on kind of behind closed doors that we don't always know what's happening. Definitely. And it was very interesting to sit in on that conversation, though. I don't know too much about trade. It's always great to just listen to those kinds of conversations and stay up to date. And we are always keeping up with stuff on the Ag News Daily podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ag News Daily to keep up with us as well. And keep up with our episodes on our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.